This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. We are now just a little over a week, week and a half away from the provincial election. And for many people, that cannot come soon enough. For others, this has become high theater that is better than a soap opera, better than any drama on TV, because this has become a particularly nasty campaign. There have been accusations, there have been stories put out there, there have been angry things thrown around back and forth, and it's not just the personal stuff, although there's been a lot of candidates that have raised or had personal issues raised about them, about things they may have said or done in the past or whatever else. But certainly we have seen with the leaders themselves and in all candidates' meetings, this has been relatively speaking, maybe not Hillary, Donald Trump level, but this has been for Ontario politics, a nasty, angry campaign. And I want to go to you tonight off the top to ask you about this, because there are two schools of thought on this kind of thing. The one view would be that angry campaigns just tick people off. They don't really want all this anger, all this rage in their life. They've got enough going on in their lives. We keep hearing we want sunny ways. We want happiness. We want platforms, not anger and all these kind of things. So I'm just tuning it all out. I'm not listening anymore. If you can't tell me everything you want nicely, I don't want to hear it. There is that line of thinking, which would suggest that an angry campaign will lead to lower votership, that this will suppress the number of people who come out and vote on June the 7th. That's one line of thinking. The other line of thinking is that this anger, this drama, this insulting comments back and forth, these strong positions that people have and that they are getting in some cases quite personal about, this is something that is going to keep your attention. This is something that is going to, that that is making people stick with it because what's next? What are we going to hear? We're going to hear something. I mean, do you tune into a debate because you want to hear politicians talk lovingly to each other? Or do you tune into a debate because you want to hear someone come up with a line that is going to absolutely eviscerate the other candidate? I think I know the answer to that question. But if that's the case, then this potentially could lead to a much bigger increase in voting because anger often stirs passion, which stirs response, which would stir a trek to the ballot box. So what do you think it is for you, for you personally, is the fact that this has been a relatively angry, nasty, vitriolic campaign with a lot of personal stuff and a lot of anger and a lot of strong feelings. Is this something that has turned you off or is this something that has quite frankly turned you on and wants to make you more inclined to go to the ballot box? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. I'd love to hear from you on this one. Which way is this working for you? Are you, because of this, are you more likely to vote on June 7th or less likely to vote on June the 7th? Let me go to Frank. Frank joins us now. Frank, how are you tonight? I'm just great, uh, Scott. You know, when you started this, the first name that came to my mind, and you know what it is, is Trump. This nastiness that's under the belt type of and making accusations and going into the dirty... It all started with him. And you know what? I don't, whatever you want to say, the media is very, very influential. 
and I think that we, and people emulate these things, and I think that he started to go uh, below the line, and now everybody's doing it. Well, Frank, I'll take issue with you on something, because I think that it goes far before Trump. Trump certainly was a loud, angry uh, candidate like that, but you, there was a movie that came out, it was a documentary after Bill Clinton beat George W or George H.W. Bush way back in whatever year that was, I can't remember now. And it was the war room and it was all about James Carville and all those. And this stuff has been going back. They were digging stuff up then to try and find stuff about candidates. This, this is as old as time, even the well, Richard Nixon days. It goes back to Let Richard Nixon. That, yeah. Okay. That, 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 I agree with you there too, but you know what? Um, I think it's just, it's it, the way I see it. It's a stage of desperation between the three. Now I'm going to answer your question that you asked. Do you feel like you, how, do you want to vote? You know what? For the first time in all my years, I'm kind of disgusted. I, you know, I mean, any one of those three who do that, who come out in anger, in desperation for their own uh, ability to to uh, uh, convince me that they're going to be the one to, to vote for. I don't want them to be taking a crack at the next candidate. I want them to tell me what they're going to do better and how. So, so you're not wanting them to defeat the other person. You're wanting them to sell them. I Exactly. <laughs> Frank, I appreciate the call. Thanks very much. Uh, Always listening. Bye. Let me uh, let me go to Karen. Karen, how are you tonight? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Excellent, thank you. So, are you like Frank? Are you someone who believes that you would want the candidates to be very upbeat and positive and sell themselves entirely, or are you kind of even as a guilty pleasure kind of liking the let's go at it and let's have a boxing match politics? Actually, no. I think that each candidate should be very positive in what they want to do and what their platform is, and go for that. I think what gets to me is that, like Andrea Horvath, for one, is attacking uh, Doug Ford on, you know, if you you um, vote for Doug Ford, you're going to he's going to lose six six million people, lose their job. It's going to be privatized health care. It's going to be this and that, and that is not the truth. Well, and, and we've seen it from every part. I mean, let's be honest. That's true, and that has been said that there's going to be six billion in cuts and all these job yeah. losses and everything else. Yeah. Every candidate has told us what the other candidate is going to do and how that those two other candidates are going to completely ruin life in Ontario and all of our children are going to die and we're all going to starve and we're going to be Venezuela. Absolutely. But the problem is is that the, the issue I think is foremost is that Ontario people have to pay attention to the news. They have to pay attention to what's going on. And they have to be very informed as to what's happening. Karen, I have to take a quick break. I'm going to put yes. you on hold, all right? I want to keep going, but i got to take a break because I just looked at the clock and I'm way past my time here. But Thank hang you. in. I'm going to bring you right back, okay? We're going to take Thank a quick you. break. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Chatting about the election. We're chatting about the negativity in the election, the anger in the election, the vitriol that has flown around in this election. It is unusual to have this level of anger, at least in my recollection, in a provincial election. Yeah, down in the States, we kind of expect this now, where politics has become a all-year-round campaign, start three, four, five years before, and it's all a big game. It's different here, except this time it hasn't been. And so what I've been asking you is, is this making you more likely to vote because you say, well, I've really been paying attention because it's always there and there's lots of stuff to follow, and so I've now really developed a... Uh, a love for one candidate or a hatred for another candidate, which I can't see that person winning, so I got to vote against them. Or has it made you less likely because you're like, I don't want to be any part of this at all. I want positivity. I want just 
candidates selling themselves. Well, I had to go to break, so I cut Karen off halfway through. So I brought Karen back here. Karen, thanks for sticking Hi. around. Hi. Uh, no so, problem. so again, I mean, you have you've made it clear before the break that you would rather have candidates who sell themselves as opposed to the negatives of their opponent. But would oh, this yeah. would this Absolutely. make would this make you less likely then to go vote because you're disgusted by them, or were you okay. still going to vote? Okay, first off, I always vote. If you don't vote, as far as I'm concerned, you can't complain. So I always, always vote. But I think before you vote, you have to be very careful about listening to which candidate has which information and what their platform is and what they're running on. Because, like, as I say, like, Andrea Horvath has been pushing at Doug Ford, saying that there's six million jobs are going to be lost, he's going to privatize health care, he's going to do this and he's going to do that. Well, that is not what he's going to do. So that's a negative um, attack on Doug Ford, which is not what he's going to do. So you have to get through the rhetoric and you have to listen to what's going on with each individual party and what their platform is before you can make an educational vote. And I think a lot of people go out and strategically vote after they listen to the polls, but that's not the way to do it. Like, this is our life. Like, this is our kids' lives. I have three children. You know, they want a home, they want to have a backyard, they want to have everything that we had when we were growing up. And this is a serious situation here now. It is like, Karen. Kathleen Wynn has done it for everybody. Like, she has sent us back so many flipping years. She has caused so much... Um, okay, Karen, I'm going to jump in, but yeah. I, like, I really, I appreciate, I really appreciate the call and thank you for the time. It's, it's obvious and, and it's good. I mean, Karen is passionate about who she's going to vote for. I think we can probably guess. Uh, and that's fine. That's good. She is clearly going to go vote, and I support what Karen says, that you should be voting. Whether I think it is your responsibility to vote. I believe wholeheartedly. The question becomes, does this kind of campaign make it less likely for you to cling to that view? It was pointed out that um, Alan Carter, actually from Global News, uh, something was just uh, put out, and I, and I think it's a great point that he makes. One of the things I hadn't even considered, and as soon as I saw the tweet that he just sent out, it was like, well, yes, of course. One of the things we've heard in this election, probably more than almost any other election in recent years anyway, is using the ghosts of elections past against the current candidates. How many times, you heard it, you hear it on a commercial right here on the station, that when you're talking about Doug Ford, you hear Mike Harris's name invoked. How many times with Andrea Horvath have you heard Bob Ray's name invoked? How many times with Kathleen Wynne have you heard Dalton McGinty's name invoked? None of these are used for positive purposes. There is nobody who's saying, you know what? That Dalton McGinty was quite a fella. We really miss him. Therefore, vote for Kathleen. No one's saying that. No one is using Mike Harris's name to try and prop up Doug Ford. So the whole point of this thing is that it's all seemingly negative. And when you watch the campaign, you know, they all try for a minute or two to really sell what they're going to do. But then what happens? Then the guns come out and they're shooting at each other. Does this kind of thing, does this kind of campaign make you more or less likely to bother to go to the polls and cast a ballot? Here's what I think. I really believe that... Most people say they want it to be positive. And I believe that some people really do believe that. 
I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take issue. I think Frank and and Karen who called in, the fact that they took the time to call in, I believe they probably really do believe that. But I think there's an awful lot of people that say, I want it to be positive. I really want this to be a positive campaign, run cleanly. I want everyone to just sit around and be nice to each other. But you know what? Deep down in their soul of souls and heart of hearts, they want this to be as nasty and mean and in the mud as possible because that's way more entertaining. I mean, Karen's right. This is real life. We have a province to run. We have debt to deal with. We have all these other things. Mud does not necessarily equal good governance, but boy, it's entertaining. And if it's entertaining, a society like ours with short attention spans like we have, that'll keep us watching. And if we're watching, we may form an opinion. And if we form an opinion, we may decide to exercise that opinion, which means voting. I think voting is going to be up this time. Not because we love the candidates, because we hate some of the other candidates and it's going to make us go out there and vote for the one we don't dislike as much. But we'll see. We will see if I'm right at the end of this election. I think it's going up because of that anger. Hold me to it. We'll find out after June 7th. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. But first of all, some, some math folks down in the States, in the University of Vermont decided they were going to study literature. Now, this is not the study of literature that you expect, not the way you and I studied literature. They actually were doing it math-wise. They were data mining folks. They decided they were going to run some stuff through computers. And so they took 1,700 English language novels. So I'm, and I don't know all the novels. I'm assuming it runs the range from Shakespeare all the way down probably to Pulp Fiction. I don't mean the movie Pulp Fiction. I mean like, you know, talking about Harlequin novel kind of things. The range, 1,700 English language novels and through a series of algorithms, finding certain keywords and everything else, they ran these to see if they could find any commonalities or regularly occurring things. What they discovered was fascinating. According to this study from the University of Vermont, There are six storylines, story arcs, the way that the story plays out. There are six of those that occur in all of these 1,700 books. Now, not all six in every book. Every single novel has one of these six arcs, either rags to riches, where someone goes from bad to good fortune, riches to rags, which is the opposite. You start well and you crash and burn, Icarus which is a rise and then a fall in fortune. So you've started poorly, you've gone up, and then you come right back down. Oedipus, which is a fall and then a rise and then a fall again. So you've started up, you go down, you go up, you go down. starting to look like a roller coaster. Cinderella, which is a rise, a fall, and a rise. Or what they call man in a hole, which is fall and then rise. Fascinating stuff. It's also a little puzzling because you would think that surely there would be more than just these six. Well, the music. Gary Barwin is author of Yiddish for Pirates. He's a Hamilton author. That novel, by the way, was a finalist for the Giller Prize. He just wrapped up a year as writer-in-residence at McMaster University. Great writer, intelligent writer, seems like the perfect kind of guy to try and walk us through and work with me to try and figure out why we only have six of these story arcs. Gary, how are you tonight? I'm doing very well, thanks. Um, I was taught, now I don't know if you were taught the same thing, but I was taught in high school once upon a time that all drama 
stemmed from conflict, and there were three types of conflict, man versus man, man versus himself, and man versus nature, I think, were the three of them. Um, mm-hmm. This, I don't know if this broadens that, I don't know if this changes that, but are you surprised when you hear that all these novels fall into one of six different storylines? I guess it doesn't surprise me. I guess it depends what, what, you know, what does it actually mean in, in, in practice? But, you know, it's sort of logical, you know, you wake up and in the morning and are things good or good are things bad? And then what happens to, you know, in the course of the day, does it get better? or Does it get worse? Does it get better? And then it gets worse. And then it gets, you know, I, I think some of them are fairly intuitive, um, just how we experience the world. And so they've kind of codified them into some specific storylines. Yeah, I, I suppose the one that was not in there, there's actually two that were not in there that I thought of that I was surprised. One of them, I guess, because it only doesn't occur very often. When I had to read wait, or read Waiting for Godot once upon a time, <laughs> yeah. I would have suggested that's just a flat line all the way through. I didn't have a clue what that was about, but it didn't seem like anything happened. Uh, and the other one that I thought, well, it's not really in here, is maybe it is in here. Well, I was calling it the uh, the law and order one where it's a fall arise a fall and arise because that just followed the plot of every single episode of law and order but that's not a book um but it, it got me wondering whether the fact that we have six of these that these data miners would find six does this suggest something about the human condition to sound really deep that this is all the ones that we could have or is it a lack of creativity how would you look at this well, you know, I mean, I think that even though if we can have simple patterns, within the patterns, they feel completely different. You know, it's like, you know, you get up, you have wear pants and a, and a shirt, but what do they look like on that? What do they look like on different people and what do their patterns are like and what are they made? You know, it seems infinite, even though they follow the same form. And I think that's that's with stories, too. You know, I mean, that it it's they feel different, even if they you can say, OK, I see it follows the same form, but. Um, it doesn't. Once you fill it with content, and once you fill it with, you know, how you feel about it going from a fall to a rise to a fall, and how you connect to the characters or the situation, it doesn't feel at all the same. Even if you can say, "Ah, yes, I see it follows the same pattern." Right. I guess you could say, you know, every painting involves paint and a brush, or paint and a this, or paint a watercolor. I mean, there's different. There's only a few things, but the, no painting ever looks like another painting. I, I mean, so I get your point for sure. Yeah, and I mean, it's, I, mean, I think it's how, I mean, that's one of the amazing things is, uh, about story is something that's quite simple, though it can, you know, you, you, once you, once you care about it, you fill it with your, with your relationship to, you know, the writer, the reader fills it with their relationship to the story. And so that makes it feel entirely different. Um, so I mean, I mean, yes, I think it is part of the human condition that there are certain basic shapes, perhaps, but how we, how that the fact that they can be so endlessly elaborated maybe is also part of the human condition that we constantly see things, um, the variety of things and the possibility of things and have different feelings about, about things, I think. It, it makes me wonder, I mean, when you, let me ask you this, when you sit down to write a story, I'm probably gonna have to cut off your answer halfway through and pick it up after the break, but we'll start. When you, when you sit down to write a story, do you plot out very specifically what the story arc is going to be? Or do you say, okay, here's my idea. Let's see where this thing goes. And then you find out that you've written a book. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I start out, you know, you put somewhere, somebody somewhere and with some set of concerns and then you see what what their life turns out like or what their story turns out like. And even if you have an idea that, you know, it's going to move towards a happy ending or something positive or they're going to realize some of what they hope for, how they actually get there is full of ups and downs and how how I feel about those ups and downs and how the reader will feel about those ups and downs. 
will change as you know will change as the story progresses. I think it's about to me. It's about discovering that and discovering how I feel about how something happened. They lose all their money. Well, how do I feel about them losing all their money? Do I is that a sad thing? A, an opportunity? A, is that a suspenseful thing or a sad thing or a you know what 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 is that? And so that's part of what to me writing and reading is figuring out how I feel about the events that on the surface may feel may seem one way or the other. You know, they may seem happy or sad. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Gary Barwin is that author, the author of Yiddish for Pirates, finalist for the Giller Prize, just wrapped up a year as writer-in-residence at McMaster, and we are chatting about this study that was done, this work that was done by data, data folks, mathematicians about literature, finding that every single novel that they studied, 1,700 English-language novels, all have one of the same six story arcs, the same way the story plays out. And just before the break, Gary and I were chatting, I was asking him about how he writes, what is the process? And basically, Gary, let me not put words in your mouth, but you sit down with a few ideas and see where the story goes. That tells me that these six must be a very natural feeling progression then, for us, that they may, these six storylines must be things that we resonate with for whatever reason. Oh, absolutely. And, and I also think they mix and match them. So one story, one storyline has a whole bunch of sub, smaller storylines in it. So, you know, one, basically, if it's rags to riches, well, on the way, there are all these, you know, rises and falls, rises and falls. So I think you can see it as, you know, the, they have some basic shapes that then can be used in many, in many different ways. One thing I was going to say was um, the reason that they can do this data analysis, which is, is I think it's a change in how we can look at literature because so much is digital now. Is all these books are digitized. They can then look at not just the one, um, um, you know, one particular famous book. They can look at all the books that are written in you know a given year or most of them. So they can actually start looking at at everything rather than just just one or two. So good books, bad books, you know, um, successful books, not successful books. They can look at everything. And so they've been, um, literary scholars have been actually doing all sorts of examining what it actually, you know, what books are actually like and being able to survey, you know, the, the entire corpus of, of, of literature rather than just, you know, the ones that happen to be the famous ones. In ad- well, in addition to being a great writer, uh, you are also a reader. I know you're, you're a reader. I mean, so when mm-hmm. you, when you hear that, when you hear these six, and I, in a moment I'll give them again, but when you hear these six storylines or ways the narrative do, do they do, is there a ring of truth to it do you hear those and you say yeah you know that makes sense that these are the ones that we have oh no absolutely i mean you know we think about you know a story has a happy ending or a or a sad ending right and so we say okay and then so does the person start happy or sad at the beginning and then where does it go so it just seems they do seem very um natural shapes they almost seem like they were they're the kind that are just um I can see why, like mathematicians, would like to be seem like they're they're shapes that are occur in nature. Mm-hmm. Almost, you know, they're just the nature of what a story, what possibilities a story can have. Now you, but you said, and I, and I think you're exactly right that you said, you know, these you have to have something to make a story go, and so someone's got to either have a better day that, or you know, something good or something bad, whatever. The yeah. interesting thing about this is, in all these six, the most number of ups or downs is four. Someone mm. has, has risen and fallen and risen and fallen. At no point do you see an endless roller coaster of good, bad, good, bad. Is that because as a writer, 
you realize that if I make too many of these things, all I'm going to do is completely confuse my reader and it becomes just chaos? I mean, is it that simple? Um, I think, no, I think so. I mean, I guess the overall art from beginning to end has these basic shapes. But like, as I said, there's all these little ups and downs throughout, you know, individual scenes. Like if you think of, a, I don't know, you think of a, um, a, a TV show that has many, many episodes, uh, um, you know, they may start in one way and then they end up, at the very end of it, there ends up with a happy ending or ends up with a tragedy, but each episode has ups and downs, ups and downs. So, But but the reader, or the viewer in that case, has to have a sense that it's all going somewhere. There's a basic direction. Otherwise, I think they just get lost. And then all the little little ups and downs at, become suspenseful or become exciting because it's, okay, I see we're doing all these little twists and turns on the way to where I know we're going or where I have a sense of where we need, where we're going. So then all those little things are... That, that adds to the, the excitement, the interest, the engagement with those things. Is, there one, of, is there one of these that strikes you, though, as, and, I, and I'm, I'm getting you cold on this, certainly you haven't read all 1,700 books, I don't imagine that they've studied, <laughs> uh, but is there one that strikes you as, you know, that one's the most common, that's the one that strikes me that they've probably been done the most often? Because, I mean, the, 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 the rags to riches to rags is common, but the, I mean, just the simple rags to riches seems probably to be the one that, most writers, it seems to me anyway, have probably latched onto. Yeah, no, I think so, because, I mean, they're the opposite one where, you know, they start well and then it ends in tragedy. I mean, that's also very a very, very common one. I mean, any number of tragedies work that way. But that's I think that's a harder one to pull off. You know, you start, if somebody starts out really great and then it's just terrible um, when, when it happens, it's harder for for writers to pull that off and make the reader care and feel that they weren't ripped off in a way. Exactly. You know, you, you know, I hate that author by the end. I'm never buying his book. You, you do want people to buy your books again when it's all done. Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, you want them to be, I mean, uh, no pun intended, invested in your work. I mean, you want them to, to care about and to not feel like, oh man, they just they pulled the rug out from me. But actually that, the, that that unhappy ending means something, that there was some point to it other than just making you unhappy. So whereas, <laughs> whereas you know, people are mostly like, okay, that was a happy ending and I, and I bought it. I that happiness is the thing in itself in a way, right? If it ends happier, you know, people are, people understand that. I mean, as long as it's not too happy, as long as it seems like it's not sappy, not schmaltzy. Yeah. But, but I mean, either way, you have to think that the, that the overall shape of the story, there's some reason for it. It's not just the author just made it happen, but that you actually feel it comes organically from the story. But I think those are the two basic, the, the most basic shapes, right? Either, you know, from, from, um, like rags to riches or from riches to rags, if you're putting it in, in, in the money terms. Gary okay. Barwin. i got to jump in here, Gary. But listen, Gary Barwin, he's the author of Yiddish for Pirates. Go get that one. Hamilton writer. Uh, really appreciate the time, as always. Thanks for doing this today. Oh, yeah, thanks. Very interesting. It is. The, um, the, the six, by the way, that all, apparently, that all novels follow, either rags to riches, going from bad to good, riches to rags, the opposite, Icarus, a rise and then a fall, so you started low, you went up, you went down. Oedipus, which is the other, a fall, a rise, and then a fall again. Cinderella, which is a rise, a fall, and a rise. You keeping up with all this? And a man in a hole. I don't know what the, why they call it that, but a rise, a fall, and then a rise. But all of our novels. So when you read your, what the novel you're reading now, it'll follow one of those patterns. They all do it. It's fascinating. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Time... For a little something on this show that we do every, once a week, I was going to say every once in a while, but it's once a week, 
called Ben's Story of the Day. Ben is the guy who's behind the glass. You don't see Ben. You don't hear much about Ben most of the time. He answers the phones. He presses the buttons. He keeps us on the air. Here's what we do. I bring in three of the most ridiculous stories of the week that I can find from the world, from around the world. I give you the outline of them, and Ben chooses which one is his story of the day. You can play along at home. You can let me know which one you would choose, radley at 900chml.com. Let us start with this one, which fits with the song you were just hearing. Guy in Cleveland. Now, did you ever, Ben, did you ever watch the show The Office? I've seen bits and clips, but I've never actually seen the show. All right. There's an excellent episode. of. They're all ep- excellent. But there was one particular episode where Michael Scott and Dwight Schrute go off on a sales call, and Michael has a new GPS that goes berserk. I can't remember what the circumstance exactly is. But anyway, it keeps telling him to turn down this road. Turn here, turn here. So he turns and drives directly into a lake. Well, this guy in Cleveland didn't drive into a lake, but he somehow (laughs) took a wrong turn despite all the signs that were in the way telling him don't go down here and found his car now buried up to the doors in wet cement on a freshly paved road that they now had to bring in a crane because he couldn't move it. And I guess by the time they were able to get the thing started, it was beginning to become impossible to get the car out. So, uh, and by the way, for the record, if anyone's wondering, I said it was a man driving, you know, just to be fair, just to be fair. So the jokes don't start, but yes, it was a guy who got himself stuck in Wet cement. Didn't think that was possible. You'd think that at some point, if you began to get to the cement, you'd go, "What? why is my car being so sluggish? You wouldn't actually gas it, so you would go fully into the wet cement. Anyway, he did. That's, I have a friend who works in construction, and he has people who do that in the tarmac as they're laying it down. I'm, I'm some planes. I'm 747. Just like, right into the... Anyway, all right, there's story number one. Story number two comes to us from Eastleigh, England where police arrested a 30-year-old man. Um, It's an odd story. It's a very odd story, which is why I brought it here. Uh, He was arrested after after he was found wearing a woman's brassiere carrying a sack of potatoes as he entered a travel lodge. Uh, When searching his room, they found a bathtub full of potatoes. (laughs) which I couldn't explain. Uh, And not surprisingly, a large variety of drugs, including ecstasy and MDMA. And when asked why he was wearing a brassiere and filling the bathtub with potatoes, he said, well, it felt like the right thing to do at the time. (laughs) The gut instinct was. The gut instinct of someone on ecstasy is fill the bathtub with potatoes and wear a bra. That seems to be the kind of thing you do. That is story number two. Story number three. Scientists, apparently, and this is coming to us from, um, well, it's a story in the, or a study or whatever, in the Journal of International Union of Crystallography, that the new superfood that humans are going to want to eat, the new superfood is cockroach milk which apparently has like multiple times of the vitamins that regular milk would have. But all I could think of when I heard this story was, it's going to be really hard to milk the cockroaches. 
<laughs> How exactly are you going to milk a cockroach to get enough milk for a human to... Those poor cockroaches are going to be dried right out if we, if we try to get enough milk from them. And imagine how small your hands would have to be to try and milk one of these things. And the, the screaming of the cockroach when you're squeezing and pulling. I mean, it's, it, it seems like an, a, a difficult food group, a superfood to achieve, to, to get enough of that it makes a big difference. You're worried about the cockroaches screaming? I can just imagine the people screaming. I thought they were scary. I then found out that they can fly. Now they've got milk? Although very difficult to get from them, I would assume. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I would assume this is not a cow, right? You have to have very, you're going to have to put all of our children to work milking the cockroaches in your homemade cockroach farm. So anyway, driver getting stuck in the cement when he took a wrong turn, the guy wearing a bra and filling his bathtub with potatoes, or milking cockroaches for superfood. Which is your story of the day today? As tasty as cockroach milk sounds, I'm going to go with the guy on drugs who decides to wear a bra and fill his bathtub with potatoes. Uh, because, not a bad choice. You know, follow your gut. Not a bad choice. Uh, although, I really do want to see someone milk a cockroach. This has become my new goal in life, is to see a cockroach milking exercise. You'll probably find someone on ecstasy trying to milk cockroaches. <laughs> in a bathtub filled with potatoes. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Time now for a special guest. I'm just a homeboy. Weed is no luxury. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where Ben's finding this stuff now. Some sort of version of Bohemian Rhapsody with ganja or something. I'm not sure. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. I don't think this is reflective of you. What was that? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, was, I mean, I, I consider myself pretty <laughs> up in, in music and knowledgeable. I don't even know what that was. That was from the deep cuts of the deep cuts. Now, I think that was from Jim Morrison's basement during his drug years. I'm not really sure. Uh, well, you know. Jeez. <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna have to do some research. That was the, the reggae gunja version of Bohemian Rhapsody. I, I, I'm not going to call that reggae. Well, no, that really wasn't reggae. It, just, I, it was just the gunja part that I, I tagged the reggae on there. There was no reggae at all to it. It was awful. <laughs> it was not very good. I grant you. We'll, we'll put that one on the trash heap. That one will not make a return visit. Hey, speaking of awful, that's nah, not awful. I was going to say, uh, you you had some bad luck last week. You fly all the way to Regina, arrive like 10 minutes before the semifinal game, <laughs> and they lose, and your plane that you landed in didn't even leave yet. It was still taxiing on the runway. You just pulled it back to the, the tunnel and said, hey, I'm flying home right away. I mean, that, that, was a, um, that was a tough trip to make for that game. Well, you know, it actually wasn't bad, Scott. Uh, you know, and I actually, we showed up just before. By the time we landed, I had about, we had about, me and my camera, Dave Milo, had about 10 minutes, basically, to grab all the camera equipment and, of course, our luggage. We didn't even have time to go check in in the hotel, but it was straight to the Brandt Center, which is the 6,500-seat arena that the Memorial Cup was being played in. And credit to the Bulldogs, they made a new media availability for us. <laughs> so we could actually, you know, talk to the players, and I could craft together a story to present at 6 o'clock previous to the game. So, uh, you know, it... it it was one of those things that you're there and 
you're hoping so hard for that team, you know, which have provided so many cheers for this city to just get to the final game because you know that the Pats, the Regina Pats, could be defeated. And the fact that they played them earlier and lost 3-2 to them. But it was a game that Hamilton was leading for most of the... In fact, for, for the, except for 33 seconds of the game. Yep. So it was yep. really disappointing for all of us that they, that they, were, you know, they lost. But, I mean, again, it's the old cliche, but it really does you know, warrant some truth that you know, it really was a wonderful season and those guys certainly should hang their heads, uh, you know, keep them high. Absolutely. All right, let's switch gears from Hawk tonight because I got two things I want to talk to you about neither one is hockey first one for the fourth consecutive year we are going to have an NBA final of the Golden State Warriors versus LeBron James is this good for basketball because I don't think it is I think you know once or twice okay but at a certain point it just becomes do do I really why do I want to see this again I I I'm I'm in the complete opposite. Would I really be that intrigued if it was Houston and Golden State and the defending champions? Not as much. I think this is just unreal. I mean, LeBron James. I mean, if anyone's been watching, what he's been doing uh, is just he's he's turning into superhuman. I never in my mind ever thought I would see a player that I could compare, at least in my viewing eras. And you know, these two different eras. But at least in my time of two of a player that could compare to Michael Jordan for greatness and ability to put a team on his back. So this is one of the worst teams around him that I have. Oh seen. yeah. Oh and, yeah. But yet he wills his players to be better, you know. And when they're not, he takes command. And for the most part, he wins. So to watch what happens again in this trilogy or yeah, I guess what four times in a row really quadrilogy so, yeah it it, it, it it intrigues me because for one Golden State are not the same team that they've been you know over the last you know good you know five years I'll say uh, they're they, they can be had and if LeBron can pull this off there that argument about him being the greatest basketball player of all time May rain true. Oh, uh, uh, look, I, I expect Golden State is going to win this thing because the only reason is LeBron is clearly by far the best player, the most dominant player, but there is only one of him. There's nobody else on Cleveland that I would trade a bag of balls for. I mean, even Kevin Love, his brain is now mush because it's been banged around in a concussion. So he is, he's, I mean, there, there's nobody. Golden State, you can move the ball around. It becomes a hard team to defend against because there's just so many good guys. But. Yeah, it, I mean, I, I look. I, I've I've just become kind of even. You know, the Rocky. By the time we got to Rocky Four, with Ivan Drago, it was like, okay, I think mm-hmm. we pretty much covered this terrain. I, I don't know that we need to see Rocky fight another. It's the same kind of thing. You know, the Godfather thankfully stopped after three. See, I I, I don't see that. I I see this as again, you know, arguably the best team. And you know what? This is also an opportunity. They're very with the salary caps and the way the games are nowadays it is very very rare to ever say that and i don't i'm going to talk about golden state now it's very very rare to say uh the word uh, legacy uh you could say dominance you could almost say you know team of the of the you know of of a particular era the warriors are approaching that and oh for sure it's rare to be able to see that in sports nowadays, and for them to even get back. And we saw this. I mean, I'll go some years back for the Buffalo Bills. Never won a Super Bowl, but getting there four straight times. There are many 
things you could say may never happen again, a few things that you could, you could say may never happen again, that may never happen again. And from that, Bill's greatness. Look how many players are in the Hall of Fame. Look how good, how good time. We, they, were, they were a joke for losing four in a row, but now time has changed. And we've looked at those teams and said, what an amazing era they had of great players. So I, I see this you know, with, with the Golden State Warriors. Let's switch then. Okay, so so you and I, you and I can disagree on this one. I, again, I'm I'm totally impressed with LeBron. There's no question about it. My my estimation of him in his spot in the pecking order of all time greats has gone up monumentally in these playoffs. And in fact, while I still I was talking with Don Robertson about this earlier in the week, while I would still, if I had to pick my first ever the player that I would take in a draft of all time, if you were picking of anybody. Magic Johnson is still the guy I take first because he can play everywhere and he makes everybody on the court better. I've got LeBron now ahead of Michael Jordan because Michael Jordan had teams with way better guys around him. If you had LeBron with Dennis Rodman doing all the rebounding and Scottie Pippen, he's been to eight straight finals. He would have at least as many championships as Michael Jordan does. Yeah, I, I, I put him ahead of Michael Jordan. I know some people say, that's crazy, you can't. No, Michael Jordan had way better players around him than LeBron has. LeBron is playing with the YMCA's junior varsity squad right now. Well, and, and not in all teams. I mean, not throughout his entire career, because let, let's not disrespect what he had with Houston, with uh, sorry, Miami, Miami yep. with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, who people want to knock, but I'm telling you, Chris Bosh is a Hall of Fame player. And he, he but what he's doing this at this point of his career, at his advanced age, playing 48, you're playing the whole game. Who plays the whole game in basketball? You know what I mean? At, at, at his advanced age, and we'll also put into the fact that how many, it's eight straight finals? Yep. Okay, so imagine that. 82-game regular season, at tack on, what, 24, 25 yep. games? And then do the math. So 100 games eight. a year. So he's done 800 games in the last eight years, roughly. This is insane. It's actually more. I think he's at 101 now. So, like, I mean, it, it's mind-blowing. And then you add in Olympics and World Championships and all stuff that he's participated in. This guy is superhuman. Now, by the way, to answer your question, who plays every minute of every game, there's always one guy at the Y in the pickup games who won't come <laughs> off to sub off. There's, there's always that one guy. LeBron is him. Only the difference is that guy is always 47 pounds overweight and insists on going skins even though he's covered in body hair and you don't want to ever cover the guy. You know who that guy is. We all know who that guy is. All right. Let me switch tack here because it strikes me in a different sport that we have now officially reached the point when the Toronto Blue Jays should be completely blown up and we should just acknowledge, Mark Shapiro and Russ Atkins should acknowledge, this team is not going anywhere. Let's sell off the pieces for whatever we decent future parts we can get. There is no point pretending at this point that this team is anything other than a lower half, lower middle of the pack team that will accomplish nothing. Well, I, I, you know what? I'll be honest with you. I think they know that, and I think that's the way their mindset is right now. And I think that's why you're seeing players like what the Urena playing, like Russell Martin playing third base. Um, Donaldson's going to be traded. There's no doubt about that. I think there's a certain amount of discontent I see from him. Uh, you know, he's had some consistent injuries, shoulders, the tightness of, of the calf, which he had last year, has sprung up again. 
I, I, and I'm sure at this point of his career, he wants to be on a winning team, and the Blue Jays are just not that. And I don't think will be for a couple of years. But, uh, you know, even a Kevin Pillar, you know, who's up at the plate right now, I could see him being traded. There's a lot of outfielders. There's a lot of spare parts. I mean, there's, in fact, there's so many spare parts. This team right is now. spare parts. I mean, I mean, I mean Diaz. Uh, Solarte's been a pleasant surprise, but to me, he's still a spare part. Uh, Granderson, at his advanced age, a spare part. I think they, that's their mentality already right now, Scott, and they're just basically biding time for some of their younger players to, to mature in the lower levels, and then they'll maybe add some pieces. So, uh, you know, I know everyone's crying for the Vladdy Guerrero Jr. to be called up. To me, that is a waste of time. And to have him in this environment would be does nothing for him to you know to grow and 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 I think improve as a ball player on the all around it. And that I mean we're seeing a lot of hitting, but there's also a third base aspect to it where I, I think he needs to improve at. I just wonder now, even about some of the guys who are in the pitching staff that you said that not you that people have said, well, these guys are cornerstone pieces for down the road. I mean. At, Strowman and, and Sanchez? Uh, Sanchez. At this point with Sanchez, I'm looking going, is he just having an off year? Is he just the facing the result of having a weak team? Or did we way overestimate how good Sanchez could be? Did everyone sort of overlo- overestimate how good he would be? No, that's a great that's a great question that I think this year will bear out, Scott. Now you gotta remember we didn't see much of Sanchez last year. I believe had four starts and you know, had the constant blister part uh, problem, and then they put him out for the rest of the for an entire season. So we're having a, a look at him right now. But I mean, it doesn't bode well that the last time we saw him yesterday, I mean, he delivered a career worst performance. Uh, Marcus Stroman again, you know, we got the shoulder inflammation issue. Uh, there's also that other side of Stroman that people are beginning to wonder if he's a real team guy. What do you make uh, of that? What do you, you know, make of that? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm confused there. I, I'm always, you know. And, and, <laughs> To me, a guy like a pitcher, you know, I look at the best, and that's the only way I can look at it, Scott, is I look at the guys that are the best of all time, and they went out there and just did their job, and uh, I appreciate that. I, got, I, I love the strong, silent types, the guys that, you know, what we talk about, you know, who, who are so good and so great and just go out there every fifth day and get the job done, and we don't have to worry about what they say. And, you know, hey... Maybe Marcus is one of the, these new types of athletes. Of you know, I'm getting, I'm kind of not a young guy anymore. So maybe this is a guy that appeals to you know a younger audience. I know. I mean, you look at his Twitter following, and it's you know as big as anyone on the team. So maybe he's appealing to a different type of um, uh, of of evaluator in terms of, you know, who he wants for his fans and people picking him apart. And I know he also seems very defensive when people sort of, you know, say that, you know, he's doing this right or wrong. It's sort of been his MO. And uh, I want to see Marcus, I want to, I want to see Marcus Stroman be good. I want him to be good. And and then he can do all the trash talking that he, want, that he wants, but he hasn't been very good. So, you know, to me, keep your mouth shut. You know, and, and it's a, it's an interesting one with him because there are different people who cite different reasons why he should be allowed to or shouldn't be allowed to or should or shouldn't talk. I mean, there are people who say because of his youth. There are people who say because of it's his, his size that he's allowed to do this. I've even heard people say that this is uh, something because he's an African-American that he is allowed to. To me, I'm with you. I don't care what all the other stuff is. If you, when, you can, when you're out there and you are pitching great, go ahead and talk all you want. 
But if you're out there, if you're not pitching great, and if you don't find excuses, don't come up, just pitch and worry, leave the other stuff until you've got your life sorted out or your, yeah. your game sorted out. Don't, don't tell me why you should be allowed to do this. Just do what you're supposed to do. And then no one has a problem with you it's, for no, any reason. No, because I mean, you know, what do we know personally about Max Scherzer? Almost. Well, he's got two different color eyes. You know, and what do we know personally <laughs> about, you know, Clayton Kershaw? He's got a funky delivery, and he makes $30 million a year. And there you go. And, and it's deserved, because for the most part, he carries his team. You know, maybe I know he's been criticized in the postseason, but you know what? Without you know, Clayton Kershaw, the Dodgers don't get to where they get to for the last three, four years and getting to the postseason. You know, he gives you an unbelievable effort every time he goes up, to the point that when these guys lose games, whether they get blown out or they lose tight games, you're surprised. But if, if, if Clayton Kershaw, who is in the top three, if not number one, but certainly in the top three pitchers of his era, if Clayton Kershaw decided to go on Twitter and say something that was a little cocky or a little whatever word you want to use, There's wiggle room. I, no one's going to have an issue with it because he's Clayton Kershaw. Now, yeah. if he says it all the time, you might start to say the guy's a bit of a jerk. But if, mm-hmm. you, if he comes out there and says something, you can get away... It's not Marcus Stroman. The blowback against Marcus Stroman, I don't believe, is because he's small or because he's black or because he's anything else. It's because he's not pitching well enough to have the currency to back it up with that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, that's, uh, he, he's not, he, you know, and getting to your original point, at this point, I'm not seeing what I thought we would see no out of the domination of him and to the point that you know two three years ago and you're right maybe this was a media media creation that we thought that for the next arguably the next 10 years the the rotation of uh, Stroman and Sanchez could be you know one two for the next 10 years and right now that's definitely in question and you're we are getting to the point right now I believe and this is just an opinion that if the right offer came along, uh, maybe you really do have to consider. Well, and not just because of any of the other stuff, because honestly, if you're going to tear this team down and essentially start over, and, and I don't know if they're going to do what the Astros did. I mean, that, the Astros went like right down to the studs. I mean, they were awful for three years. They were the worst team in baseball for three mm-hmm. years. I don't know the Jays are going to do that. But at that point... What is Marcus Stroman or what is Aaron Sanchez three years from now, four years from now, when they finally become good again? That's, I mean, that's, that's the reason you don't need Josh Donaldson anymore, because by the time you get good again, he's going to be too old. But, Scott, I mean, I, this is what, to my original point. I, I, I really do believe this management have already done that. Think about what the Leafs did, right, uh, when, in Mike Babcock's first year. When they There's going to be pain. Down. There's going to be the, pain. They kept a couple of guys, right? They kept a couple. But for the most part, a lot of spare parts. Uh, P.A. Parento, who ended up being you know, their leading scorer that year and ended up turning himself into, you know, he signed him on a one-year deal and then ended up getting you know, a, a real good deal and made some money as a free agent. I think he went to Colorado. But there was a lot of those guys. But I look at, their, I look at this lineup right now, and there's, there's a bunch of those guys. I, I think the teardown secretly behind our backs already happened. Look at all the spare parts in the lineup right now. Yeah, the, the only the only thing, and I guess you have to play a guy like you, Russ you, Martin because he's you, making you twenty can't. million. Who wants him at, at that that at that money? Who wants Troy Tulowitzki at that money? No, no one. I mean, hey, you know what? I'm going to get ripped for saying this. Justin Smoke is one of those guys. He had a great All Star year last year. Where is he now? 
Oh no! Why, if you could, if you could turn right around, to be in just smoke. if you could turn around, even last year, if if you're thinking that this is the you're beginning the rebuild, if you could have got something decent for Justin Smoke, you do it. I mean, again, uh, is there a team that this year will have an outfielder hurt and you? They figure that Curtis Granderson could be worth something to them. Is there someone who uh, Marco Estrada? By the time this team gets to be good again, Marco Estrada will be long past his best before day. I there's probably I mean in the farm system, yeah, there's guys. But who on this team right now would be untouchable? I can't think of anybody. Is there anybody? Uh, that's here right now. I think maybe there's some. I think when you're looking long term, and I know he's here already, I think there's some interest for me personally in T. Oscar Hernandez. All right, so maybe um, maybe but, untouchable. But you know, again, and I'm and I'm I'm reaching right now. You know, yeah. that there's nobody could be that guy. You know what? I thought I really, really thought, and maybe you did too, that Devin Travis would be a guy that would be an untouchable. No, not anymore. No, he's constantly being touched by his training staff to try and hold him together with duct tape and binding wire. It's amazing. I mean, the guy to me is an outstanding uh, hitter, has some, but right now, now his hitting's not even there any longer. Okay, last thing, we got to go. Do you believe that? Leaf fans were willing to put up with the pain that was promised because, well, they had no choice and because it's been 50 years. I mean, uh, you know, at some point, let's try something new. We've tried everything else and it's not worked. Would Jay, I mean, Jay's fans had 20 years. They didn't have 20 years of awfulness. That was the problem. They had 20 years or so of mediocrity. Mm-hmm. Would Jay's fans be okay with a year or two of awful? If the promise of two, three years from now of becoming the Houston Astros, would they would they put up with that? I think we're already putting up with it, Scott. No, it's we're we're back to the mediocre. We're no, back to the low no, end of mediocre. No, no, Scott, this team's horrible. This team last year scored they scored the least amount of runs in Major League Baseball, and I have every reason to believe that this that may happen again this year. The glory days of hitting the long ball for this team are long gone. Well, they should and have on, re-signed Bautista then. Okay, and on, well, <laughs> <laughs> he, he'll give you the twenty-five homers. I'm kidding. I but, but you know it's true though. He'll give you the twenty-five homers, but he's going to hit one forty-five. Just so like, nobody listening thinks that I'm that guy who was wearing the bra and filling the bathtub with potatoes that we talked about last hour. <laughs> I'm not on any ecstasy right now. I was joking about Bautista. <laughs> You know, like there's four guys I think on this lineup right now that are batting under 200, right? This team is horrible, and the starters' ERA I believe is third third worst in major league, not in the American League, major league baseball. And watch, like Estrada's getting pounded right now. Like this team is, they're not mediocre. They're they're a bad baseball team. I'm going to send a resume. I've always wanted to play at least one major league game. Maybe I can get in this year. Just to help out, to keep their, you know, to help them finish last for the best draft pick. Well, I, 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 could you be any worse than Aaron Loop? I can't throw with my left hand, but, um, <laughs> but actually, if I threw with my left hand, I might look like Aaron Loop. You might look like Axford. You, you could look like him. You know what? I feel that's the one guy that I do feel badly for because not only is he an Ancaster guy, but he's a guy who grew up dreaming of playing for the Blue Jays, mm-hmm. and he finally gets his opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. And they're this. Why not two years ago when you could have had a glorious return? Anyway, listen, Bubba, we're running out of time. Love having you on. Thanks for doing this as always, my friend. Yeah, always a pleasure, Scott. We will Thank talk you to you me. soon. You can catch Bubba tonight on CHCH Weather and Sports. And who knows what else? The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.